Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Ryan Dorn. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I sure appreciate the opportunity to share with your listeners, and we'll get people pumped up uh, to talk about sales. Yeah, definitely, which is a an important topic, I think, for just about every small business owner. So Ryan is going to share some of his experiences and tips on how to improve your sales capabilities and skills so that you can grow or start your small business. If your small business depends on any type of selling activities that, that are required to get people to buy from you, either a product or a service, then this episode is for you. To receive more information about the How of Business, including the show notes page for this episode and how you can continue supporting my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. So let me tell you a little bit about Ryan. Ryan Dorn is a 30-year global sales and marketing advisor to over 200 companies in 15 industries. He holds a psychology of leadership certification from Cornell, has trained over 30,000 salespeople, and has been featured in USA Today, on CNN, and on Forbes.com. Ryan is a multiple best-selling book author, an Emmy Award winner, and his sales strategies ideas have been impacted, or have impacted rather, over half a billion dollars in sales. He is a proud military dad and has been married for 26 years. Ryan loves good coffee, 80s rock music, and seeing others succeed. And his most recent book that we're gonna chat a little bit about today is entitled Selling Forward, Pandemic-Tested Sales Strategies for Success. Great thing about this book is that all of the proceeds, and, and Ryan will explain a little bit more, go to Golden Harvest Food Bank. So it's a great cause as well as a great read. Ryan lives in the Augusta, Georgia area. Ryan Doran, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Uh, Henry, if you're a golf fan, you need to come down this direction when we have our Masters Golf Tournament uh, here in Augusta. Great time to talk sales and great time to enjoy some good golf as it's well. A, it's a big event. I have never been. I'm not a golfer, but of course, I appreciate the event. My business partner and sometimes co-host, David Begin, went uh, on about three years ago. We actually did an episode about it because it's such an experience. And I don't know how to put on a show, how to, to create an experience, right? They, they know how to do that extremely well, don't they? They really do. And it applies to sales as well especially as we deal with a younger buyer set that is a much more experiential, experiential in their entire process, whether they're buying products and services or they're traveling on the road uh, to find an Airbnb or something like that. So I really think there's some learning there in just dealing with the experience of sales. Because you know most people don't mind buying, uh, Henry. They just hate being sold. Right. And I think that's important. Yep, yep, especially the hard sell. So how did you end up focusing as I was doing the research? It seems like you spent, if I got it right, almost your entire career in some sales capacity or another. Why that focus? Tell us about that. The focus of sales for me, I think, has always been everybody's in sales. Uh, kids are really, really good at sales. <laughs> and so the sales, uh, I just always enjoyed the opportunity to work with people, to help people. And so I did a lot of sales and marketing early on in my career. I just realized, though, that a lot of folks were needing significant help in selling to younger buyers. I realized my first book in 06, 07, 08, during the, uh, the Great Recession 
was very needed. That book was all focused on sort of looking backwards and using sales skills from the past to push people through 06, 07, 08. As the pandemic really came down upon us and then some economic uncertainty now after, my clients were asking me, are you going to write a different book? Because things are different now and they definitely are. And so, um, you know, my sales career all the way through um, many different industries has really led me back to sort of one foundational point, And that is I've always enjoyed helping people in salespeople that are helpers, salespeople that are advisors. Those are the people that are quite successful out there today. So I think it all goes back to me and my entire career of the enjoyment of helping people. And I'm really proud of the fact that I really believe today my calling is to help folks. And that's why I'm so happy to be chatting with you today. Interesting. What was the first product or service that you sold at the beginning of your sales career? I spent a lot of time marketing in the media business. So one of the hardest things that I ever had to sell is advertising because really you're selling an idea of something hopefully that will come true. If you are selling a, a pool table, a pool, landscaping design, whatever, you've kind of got an object or a tangible something to potentially sell. Yeah, and, you, and, <laughs> and the buyer gets immediate, somewhat immediate gratification, right? They do. And so selling, I always uh, kind of joke, and I mentioned in, in my Selling Forward book that if you can sell advertising, you can sell anything because mm -hmm. you're really selling vapor. And so I spent a lot of time in the media business, as I still do today. But if you can sell a newspaper ad to somebody in today's environment, um, I think you can sell anything out there. Yeah. So the book, again, is Selling Forward, Pandemic-Tested Sales Strategies for Success. You, you just shared what led you to writing it. And, and who is it ideally for? Well, I really believe it's for anybody that says to themselves, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in sales or I'm not good enough to be competitive in the sales business. And it's important for us all to recognize that, you know, if we're being honest, everybody's in sales um, on a daily basis. So what do we need to do to be better, to get further faster in, if you will, sort of a post-pandemic, economically uncertain uh, time? Little did I realize coming out of the main pandemic that we'd fall into, because I don't think any of us hoped that we'd have any type of economic uncertainty. We're just dealing with a large group of people now that have to be sold differently. And unfortunately, there's a lot of strategies from the 80s and the 90s, even the early 2000s that people are using now. And unfortunately, they're not resonating well. So I really wrote the book for people that want to change and they want to do better. So I'm liking to see people go from good to great, people that are stuck um, and not knowing what they're doing to get kind of unstuck and to reaffirm with people that more than likely, if you're a nice person, you probably could be pretty good at sales because you don't have to be sort of that quote unquote used car salesman mentality. Uh, you don't have to be like that. You don't have to be slick to sell. And I'm not disparaging used car folks, by the way. My uncle's been doing that for 40 years. He's quite successful. I'm just trying to help people understand you don't have to be a salesperson to be a good salesperson, be a great service provider. I, I think that what, what people get hung up on is your, is your sharing is they think that sales has to be about manipulation, about getting people to buy something they really don't want or need. And that, that's certainly that exists. Um, but by and large, that's not what we have to do to sell, to, to share with someone the value of what we have to offer. 
Indeed. And I think that the more we, I, I was going to actually title the book, the less you sell, the more you sell. Now, Henry, I know you get what I'm saying. I know your listeners get what I'm saying. The less you sell somebody, typically the more you'll get back out of it. I just thought that it probably wouldn't be that great of a title. <laughs> like sell less to sell more, you know? Right. But we'll come back to that as well, though, Ryan, because I absolutely agree with you. However, we do need to get the sale, right? And so that we do have to actually ask people for the business. But before I go there, you know, you've mentioned, you've been mentioned a couple of times, those tactics that don't work anymore in these times. Can you share with me an example of two of what you're talking about there? Well, because I'm um, happy to, because people can research so much online, they are far down the buyer's journey. They're further down the buyer's journey than they ever have been before in history. Now, I'm old enough to remember when, I mean, I, oh shoot, I'm old enough to remember when the fax machine came to office and I remember songs, hearing songs on eight track tape, but I'm not that old, but I remember a lot of that stuff. I also remember though, the hard sell and people that would, for lack of a better term, get to the end of that sale and really put somebody in a vice to make a decision. Now more than ever before, people are too well-researched for you as a salesperson to put them in that kind of vice. They're going to be so far down the buyer's journey. Back in the day, you had to meet with a salesperson to learn about a product or service. Now people are going to be 40, 50, 60% of the way to their decision before they meet with a salesperson. So we have to make sure that everything we do is, is under the premise of, Buyers buy when they're ready to buy, not when you are ready to sell. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of deadline-oriented sale or hard pressure sale or, hey, Henry, what you thought about today, somebody else thought about yesterday. Th those types of strategies, when you try to deploy those and use them, some of these, some of these younger buyers will just laugh at you. And, and they look at someone like me might, and they might say in their mind, come on, old man, you're better than that. And they, and they want you to be better. So I think one of the biggest shifts that I've noticed is, um, as I mentioned earlier, is moving to more of that helpful mode. How can I help you today? How can I be of most help to you? How can I save you money? How can I save you time? How can I help um, reduce your input um, to get the maximum output that's here? Thinking of yourself as an advisor more than a salesperson. I'm going to advise you on which washing machine to buy today. I'm going to advise you on which interior designer you should choose. I'm going to advise you on what medical device or what insurance plan. I'm not here to sell you anything. And then the last thing I'll share um, is the, you know, the whole idea behind the first rule in sales, according to many, is the first yes is always a no. That's a fallacy. It's incorrect. And people need to stop thinking that way. There's a lot of reasons why. One of the biggest ones is a no doesn't mean a no forever. It just means a no, right? Not right now. And you maybe can sell them at another time. The other thing is people are so well-researched when they say no, a lot of times they really do mean no. And when your sales fangs come out, now you've lost a customer for, for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that when somebody says no, they have a reason that they've said no, work with them on that. And we've got some skills there, but just recognize that in today's world, most of the time a no means no. And we've got to learn how to work around that in an ethical, humble, and kind way, because the last thing we want someone to do is ghost us. And if they say no to us and we our sales fangs come out, we're done. We're never going to sell them anything. 
And I think you so. um, you talk about uh, you've shared a stat that that in your findings, over seventy percent of buyers are making decisions decisions emotionally right now. And I don't know if you're if you're saying that you know post pandemic you're seeing more of that. But what do you mean by that that they're making decisions emotionally? It's a great conversation. I'm glad you asked. Before the pandemic, we noticed from our research uh, here at my company that, you know, 50 some odd percent of people were making decisions based on logic, facts, and stats. 40 some odd percent of people were making decisions kind of how they felt about a product or a service. What we noticed through the pandemic is that the emotional buyer set jumped 78, uh, almost as 80% as people were making decisions a lot more emotionally. And it's not that they weren't logical. They just, it wasn't facts and stats that were causing them to buy. It really was how they felt about a product or how they felt about a service. As the pandemic, the main first wave of, of COVID kind of got behind us once the vaccine came out, et cetera, we noticed that it dropped, the emotional number dropped below 60%. And then as a, a potential recession or economic uncertainty loomed, then that emotional buyer set rose back up. So here's how easy it is to explain. Most salespeople sell the way that they want to be sold. So let's just say, Henry, that you're an individual and you're buying a car. It's not about how the car looks or how the car makes you feel as much as it is miles per gallon or something along those lines. That's a logical buyer mindset. There's nothing wrong with that. Many people are like that. I would be opposite to that. I'm not concerned about the miles per gallon. How do I look in this car? How does it make me feel? So emotional buyers are people that are not always sold solely on facts and data. They're sold on past success stories. They're sold by you mentioning how much you love your customers. They're sold by the relationship or how they feel in the process. Logical buyers, they want to be treated well, but they're more concerned about facts and data and stats. Unfortunately, the vast majority of salespeople out there are logical buyers. So they're logical sellers. So because of that, currently during economic uncertainty climate land out here that we're living in, we have a lot of emotional people being sold by logical salespeople. So we're a mismatch for those folks. So we've got to learn to do more with storytelling. We've got to learn more to do more with doing great examples of others that have come before them that are successful. A lot more of removing risk from the equation. And you can't convince an emotional person with data. You can't, they just need to, the data is too flat. They need you to tell them a great story that they can remember and they feel related to. And I noticed that unfortunately, a lot of my selling clients, my coaching clients, they're very logical. So unfortunately they're a mismatch and we've got to work on it. Yeah. Or and so is that in part, Ryan, because buyers generally speaking now are coming to the opportunity with a lot more emotion, a lot more uncertainty, a lot more fear. And so they need more of that emotional connection. Is that part of what's causing this? They do. And the, and the salespeople ourselves, uh, me being one of them, are just not doing a great job of recognizing that logic isn't going to get it done. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to, I think the statistic, I don't have it in front of me, something like 80 some percent of people remember a great story and less than 3% of people remember a data point. Yet, yet most of the sales decks, uh, Henry, that we would see are going to be filled with data, facts, and stats. And what most people want to know is this, how much is it? And who else has done this? <laughs> mm. And it's pretty straightforward. 
I think if we'll wrap our head around the fact that we might need to be a bit of a chameleon in our sales approach, we might need to set our logical buyer mindset aside and meet people where they are. They're very emotional. So what are we doing to remove risk? What are we doing to make them feel real comfortable? And it's not that fake rapport building that's going to work. I think most people see right through that. We just have to be more aware. In the case of a person-to-person, whether it's over the phone or in person itself, in other words, you're selling to an individual, what do you usually look for or what question do you ask early in the process to determine which way you need to go there, more emotional or more analytical? Is there a, a technique or a question you ask to help you determine that? There really is. What I like to do is spend quite a bit of time on LinkedIn. So the vast majority of my customer set, a lot of you that are listening, your customer set will be on LinkedIn. Um, or they'll have a Facebook business page, or they'll have an Instagram business profile. I do my research, Henry, in advance to kind of determine, hey, who who is this person? And so I can notice that people are logical if on their LinkedIn profile, there's a lot of lists. I notice that they're more emotional if in their about section on LinkedIn, um, it's a big, long story. I can usually tell if they're a little more emotional. I recently, that well, as a matter of this morning, I was meeting with a gentleman And I noticed that he had volunteered for three different volunteer type jobs with like global vision and world vision. And so it led me to believe that he was probably a little bit more emotional just because of the time he spent dealing with these volunteer organizations. Then I also noticed that he had a very creative kind of write-up about himself. So I was able to kind of identify, okay, this is probably a more emotional person. So then when I came to the call, then I was able to say, okay, I think this guy's more emotional. So let me tell a few stories. And I was right. I really hooked him in. Had I not done that research, uh, perhaps uh, if I was a logical seller, my first slide in my presentation deck would have been all about us, all about our facts, you know, and things like that. Uh, Ben and I connected very well this morning. Um, I'm moderately confident that we've got a deal uh, in the works. And I think the reason we got so far so fast um, is because I did some research in advance and I met him where he is as an emotional buyer. If I don't have that opportunity to have researched them for whatever combination of reasons, I, you know, for example, I mentioned before we started recording one of the businesses that I'm involved in, people will come in for a tour of the facilities. So no opportunity to have researched them. What do you look for then, either body language wise or a question that I might ask early on that might help me uncover that? Yeah, I usually will say, and it depends upon obviously the business, something along these lines. When you're looking for a partner in a company like ours, what really are you looking for? Or how will, if we work together on this project, if you buy this software from me, or you move into this adult living facility, or I'm sorry, you move your parents into this adult living facility, what's the perfect outcome for you? What does that outcome actually look like? And I think either one of those questions, how do you, how do you judge or how do you make a decision to partner with us? Any one of those questions will lead you to an understanding of kind of who they are. Mm -hmm. If their answer is data-driven, is really numerical, is fact-based, is very, very data-driven, you'll know who you have. If they begin to tell a story, you normally have an emotional person that's there. Some tells are easy if they cry, you know, things like that. I mean, it's (laughs) pretty pretty straightforward. But I think each product set is different. So your question would be a little bit different. But I would say that it's worth time strategizing about Henry, because there is that one question that will really dig in to to the facts of the matter to help you determine kind of who that person is. When you connect with them, Henry, you can sell them more. 
That's the big thing. If you don't take time to connect correctly without all these fake rapport building things, that just doesn't work anymore. You need to be authentic. When you connect with them more deeply, build some quick trust with them, you always get further faster. And that's what I'm all about. Mm-hmm. So you've been touching on it, but but tell me a little bit more about what you mean by relationship selling. That's not a new term for any yep. of us who have been in sales, but but what has changed about it and how do you define it today? What is relationship selling? Relationship selling used to be build the relationship, then sell to somebody. And now what I found is that there's a large group of buyers out there that really, it's not that they don't want to ever have a relationship with you. They just don't need a relationship in order to buy from you. So a lot of the techniques of rapport building haven't gone by the wayside, but they just have have changed. Now the relationship piece typically comes post-sale. So to buy something today, not everything, but a lot of different things, whether it's a widget, whatever it is, a lot of that used to be build the relationship, then sell. Unfortunately, most folks don't necessarily want or need more friends. <laughs> They're interested but in your But pro- it's in also because as you had articulated, by the time they come to us, they've gotten a lot of that education that in the past they depended on a salesperson to guide them through, right? Correct. So they Correct. don't need that by and large from us anymore. Right. And I think they find, Henry, it's unauthentic when people tried to build a fake relationship, so to speak, with them in advance. Right. right. And they, those, you know, the old rapport building techniques, and there's been lots of books written about them. And the, the 70s are calling, they want those books back. <laughs> it just doesn't resonate with a younger buyer set. And I'm not just saying millennials, because I think that's unfair. I think there's two groups of folks, younger folks and older folks. And if you don't know which group you're in, you're in the old group. Okay. <laughs> so not you, Henry, I'm just talking about the listeners. No, I hear you. And you have to know what group your, your target buyers fall into. You really do. And it's important for us to, you know, to change our sales game. So relationship selling isn't dead. It's just moved to the other side of the sale. So most people are like, how much is it? Who else has done it? Okay, great. Now offer them great customer service, build that relationship that will potentially last uh, for a lifetime. So relationship selling isn't dead. It's just changed a little bit in kind of how we approach things. Uh, We've become a lot more tactical and a lot more regimented, more transactional in selling a lot of different things. Here's what's interesting, Henry, the number of people that push back against this. They're like, relationships are everything. I'm not saying relationships aren't important. I'm just saying that you don't have to have a relationship with somebody to sell them something. Right. And I get a lot, I take a lot of heat for that because most folks believe relationship first, sell second. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, hey, let's be honest. Let's be ethical. Let's be authentic. Let's sell them. And then let's build a relationship and keep them as a customer for a lifetime. And then they refer you as well. Absolutely. This is Henry Lopez with a brief pause to this episode to let you know that one of our sponsors and one of my favorite podcast shows, Stroke of Genius, is back for another great season. If you've ever had a great idea or brainstormed a way to make something better, Stroke of Genius is the podcast for you. Brought to you by IPO Education Foundation, Stroke of Genius identifies misconceptions about intellectual property to show the importance of IP to business and the economy. In season five, host and entrepreneur Raha Francis tackles questions about how patents incentivize investment in R&D, the right of musicians to sample music, the role of IP in promoting technology, sustainability, and more. Hear entrepreneurs, artists, scientists, inventors, lawyers, and other industry leaders 
get to the heart of what intellectual property protection means to them and why it matters. Get more information on Stroke of Genius at ipoef.org. And don't forget to subscribe and rate Stroke of Genius on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. You, you're you not uh, in the traditional sense, uh, as I think you talk about it in the book as well, a fan of what, what we used to call a needs assessment or uh, different variants of that. But, mm-hmm. but explain what you really mean by that and why there's a different way to do that now. Sure. It'll be the biggest point of contention in your comments um, about the show and people will email me and all kinds of stuff. It's very important, in my opinion, for people to understand what a CNA, a customer needs assessment, is really designed to do. It really is designed to determine what somebody wants. It's really not designed to determine what somebody needs. As a matter of fact, almost all the questions we ask in the sales process are all focused on what somebody wants, what they want from us as a service provider as a retailer, as a company, that's what it's designed. And the problem is it's called a customer needs assessment, but yet most of the questions pull out of that person what they want from us. If you give somebody what they want, they're happy for a short period of time. It might even be a year or two, but if you guide them towards what they really need, now you've got a customer for a lifetime. It's just a matter of can salespeople actually, and I don't really know if I care for the word pivot, but can you really just kind of wrap your head around the difference between a want and a need? A great salesperson is going to find out what somebody wants and, and validate that and say, that's awesome. But let me share this with you because I think long-term, this is what it is that you really need. And if you are that person that gives somebody what they actually need, even above what they want, now you've got a happy customer. So I think there's a couple things there, Henry. One is, What questions are we asking in our quote-unquote needs assessment? And then what are we doing to be an advisor, to guide people towards what they need? Because most people are almost always going to choose the lowest priced option you have available. But is that really going to get them what they need or just get them close to what they want? So I think this is all a part of the total process to not only sell people more, but also be that advisor, be that helper. And I really believe if we get out of sales and we just get into the helping mode, we're, we're going to way outsell everybody else. Sure. But, but, you know, of course, the challenge, Ryan, is that in addition to what they want, what they need is what I have to sell, right? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, there's that motivator there. I, I, I can try to be an advisor as much as I want to, but at the end of the day, I need to sell my service or my widgets and I've got a quota or I need to improve sales this month. So I've got that pressure. So how do... How do I balance that? One of the things that I like to do is if I determine the person that I'm speaking with and I'm not able to meet their needs the way that they think they need to be met. Now, if someone just wants to buy it and I try to guide them the wrong, the other direction, they just want to buy it, then I'll sell it to them. It's not you know, that big of a deal. But I want to have that conversation so that later on they'll remember, you know, Ryan was trying to guide me this, you know, this particular direction. I have found though, because of social media, if you're not careful and you just make quota and sell them, sell them hard, more than likely, they're going to try to burn you down on social media if you're not careful about it. So I think you always want to try to work towards the number of units you need to sell or whatever that circumstance is and balance that out. But I have found that if someone is a no and I ask them for a referral to somebody else, 
I've got a stronger opportunity to sell to the next person. And because I didn't oversell the previous person, I get further faster with the next person. So I think there's a lot of balance there in the short-term bit of success to get to quota and the long-term success in sales, which really is based around referrals, great word of mouth referrals, taking care of your customers and things like that. I also have noticed this <laughs> and you may have as well. When you don't let somebody buy something that they want to buy because you know it's the wrong fit, <laughs> a lot of times they want it more. Yeah, yeah, yeah no doubt. <laughs> so I want to balance it out and we all got to get to our sales numbers. But I think there's other ways to get to those numbers than to manipulate somebody, which is not what you're saying, but to manipulate somebody into a sale of something they actually don't need. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's get a little bit more tactical. You've kind of touched on it, the, the whole issue of being ghosted. But one of the most challenging things that we all face when we're trying to sell and my clients face is the whole conversation of follow-up. Mm -hmm. So let's look at it from a perspective of something that I'm selling because I'm thinking of my, my partner and cousin Mitzi, as she hopefully will listen to this. You know, one of the Mitzi's challenges, she'll do a tour for someone who comes into our uh, business center. And then we have a rule that we need to follow up seven times until we get no responses and then we'll consider it a dead opportunity. But that can be frustrating. It can be, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, dejection, the, the, that mm -hmm. not getting any response of being ghosted. So what are your thoughts for a sales process that is that requires that follow-up? You know, you've had an interaction, a demonstration of some sort, a presentation of some sort, and then you're following up. Any thoughts there on how to do that effectively? Absolutely. I think one of the most important things people need to do before they ask for the close, before they ask for the order, before they ask for the sale, is to really get vividly clear and gauge what is this person's level of interest. Because when you ask, so let me just go this route, we skip a soft close and we go right to the end. Do you want to buy this? Do you want a membership? Do you want, okay? And they say to you a lot of times, hey, I like it, but I need to think about it, mm -hmm. just as an example. The problem is you don't know where they are on a scale to one to 10. Are they a two? So they're closer to a no. Or are they a nine? They're pretty close to a yes. And all they really need is a little bit of incentive from us to sign the deal. So one of the things that I like to do is do what I refer to as the one to 10 close. So let's just say, Henry, you came in, you looked at our facility. I was thinking of selling you some type of membership. Before I ask you, do you want to be a member? A lot of times what I'll say is, so now that you've seen everything, Henry, on a scale of one to 10, one, you're really not that interested. And 10, you're ready to sign up right now. Where are you at? Well, all of a sudden you give me a gauge, like you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a five. Wow. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, Henry's a five. That means he's on the fence. So this could go either direction. Right. So then I'm going to say to you, oh, Henry, what could I do? Or what could I say? Or what could I provide to you that might get you to be a little closer to say a, a seven? You might say, well, you know, I want to bring my wife with me to, to this place. Or um, I think it's just a little more expensive than where I am. If they say, you're, oh, I'm really a three, and I'm kind of surprised because they just said, you know, they're kind of interested. Well, they're a three. What does that mean? Ask them what it means. Guide them towards getting to be more of a 50-50 kind of thing. That way, when I get to the point where I'm asking them, do you want to be a member? Do you want to buy? Do you want to purchase? I know where they're at, 
And that way I can develop the correct follow-up plan. Mm-hmm. When I'm developing the follow-up plan, it is literally, Henry, thanks for being here today. You said you're a seven. Here's three or four things I could do to try to get you to be a 10. You're like, Ryan, I still need to think about it. Not a problem. Henry, in my effort to not be a salesperson that's going to call you a thousand times, send you 50,000 emails, what is the best follow-up plan for you to feel like you've got enough time to make a decision and I'm not going to be that annoying salesperson going to drive you crazy? How? What's the best way for me to follow up with you? And what I find is that everybody gives me a different answer. Now, the one answer I don't want to hear is I'll call you. Right. <laughs> Instead, I, I, you know, I want to make sure that I'm in control of that. Yeah. But I'm amazed at what people say. Some people say, hey, drop me a text. Some people say, uh, come by my office. Some people say, give me a phone call. Some people say, email me. I had a guy the other day that said, I want you to send me 50,000 emails, just like <laughs> you promised, right? Because that's the kind of person I am. I believe, though, before the follow-up, before asking for the sale, you need to gauge their interest Yeah. because if you gauge their interest, now you know where their head really is at. Otherwise, they say, well, I just need to think about it. Well, what does that really mean in the grand scheme of things? Are they a one? Are they a 10? Are they a five, a three, a seven? Where are they at? Because a lot of times people, Henry, you're like a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. A lot of people just don't want to tell us no. Because no, yeah. we're nice guys. Yeah. Well, and they don't want the confrontation and they don't want you now to proceed into hard selling. Well, why is it a three? And well, well what can I show you again? And uh, did you not see this feature? And so they're afraid of that, right? They just want to get out of there. Yeah. The soft close is something that is it's, it's kind of a lost art. As a matter of fact, most trainers and national speakers don't talk about it um, because they just want you to get to the jugular as fast as possible. Henry, that type of sale is just not resonating today. People yeah. are just worn out from the pandemic. It wasn't but just a couple months ago. We were masked up everywhere that we were going. And now we're going back to that in some places. That's emotional, right? We've got economic uncertainty, interest rates going through the roof and things like that. We've just got to really be understanding to people that maybe we'll get back to hardcore selling at some point. But the younger buyer set appreciates a guide, a Sherpa, an advisor, a helper. They just don't like salespeople. Yeah. And it's sad because like, I'm a really nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> Another question that, that's similar that I like to ask in those cases to understand where they're at is, uh, I might say, you know, Ryan, what, what do you need to do next? What do you need next to make a final decision here? And that's often how you'll uncover, well, I need to bring my husband or I need to bring my wife or I need to bring my partner or I need to bring the team or whatever the case might be. All right, uh, so who can I follow up with to schedule that? Or when can I follow up with you to get that schedule? Can we schedule it now? So those are all their ways to, to get there to facilitate in the case of a sales process that's, that's going to take multiple steps. What are, your, what are your thoughts then? Uh, any rules of thumb or do you think it's different by industry as to how many times I follow up with not with no response? So there, that there's kind of some theories out there that people delete approximately 50% of the follow-ups that they receive because they're just busy or the timing's not right. Right. So I think we could have stats, you know, going any direction on that. So I would hedge my bet to believe that the number of times that I'm deleted is because I didn't set a follow-up plan in place that was perfect with the customer. I'm also not following up in a way they want me to follow up. So you have to get that ironed out. But I, this is how I do it. My opinion is I follow up every three business days 
and I alternate voicemail, email, wait three business days, alternate voicemail, email, wait three business days. I do that combo five total times for 10 total touches with a little bit of a wrinkle, not a wrinkle, a little bit of a, a, a rub here. When I am calling people, I'm not asking them to call me back. Instead, I'm leaving a voicemail to try to get an email response. And that's really is my goal in working with somebody is what can I do to get an email response back from them? Because normally they're not going to call you back in no. almost all cases. Yeah. So every three business days, here's the cool thing, Henry, about every three business days. If you were to follow up with somebody on a Monday, not Tuesday, not Wednesday, now you're on Thursday for the next one, not Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Monday. Now you're back to a Tuesday. So if you did every three business days on a seven day total week, you're not going to hit the same day, but every two or three weeks. Right. Here's the other thing too in follow-up is what's the best time to follow up with most people. I have found that 1115 before someone goes to lunch, not at lunch, that's annoying. 1115, 1145, and then say 315 to 345. I have great success in most of the industries I work in. But let's just say you're medical. Well, you're not going to get a doctor at 1.15. You know, right. That's right. like 5 a.m. or 9 p.m. So every industry is different. Use your technology to see when are most people replying. People reply very cyclically, very habitually. And I would tell you this, this whole idea of emailing people at 7 a.m. because everybody's up at 7. I don't know why that seems to be a trend that's growing. Um, at 7 a.m. in the morning, I'm not going to make good decisions. You know, mm. I'm barely getting coffee, getting going. So. Yeah. I just push back against yeah, 7 a.m., you know. <laughs> yeah, all great, great tips. We, we've been doing that, more or less that, and also doing, uh, you've touched it as well, texting as well. So alternating between email, phone call, and texting. But I like the idea about even in the phone message that you leave, uh, asking them to, to look at your email or reply to the email or send us an email. I think that that also, for most people, it's, it's obviously a lot more, a lot less confrontational uh, that as they might perceive it to reply through an email than to have a conversation. Yeah. And also younger buyers, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> if it goes by judging my daughter, she's really young. They don't want to have phone conversations. They'd rather do it over a text or an email is what I find. It really is. It's a lot, it's a lot less threatening. Um, and I've got a 20 year old, it's an engineering student. And if you asked him to call somebody, he'd be like, Oh, damn, oh yeah. Come on. They, they don't want to call. Yeah. That's what old people do. Old people are on the phone. That's right. And, um, and so I think it's important also that in your process um, of what you're doing, I agree. I like your seven. I think that's great. Um, but the other piece of it is asking somebody, what is your, how do sure. you want me to how follow How do you up? want me to follow up? Yeah. yeah. Um, because if you, if I said to you, call me in two weeks, I'll take your call. Don't call me in between. Um, and you did, then I'm not going to buy from you. Yeah. Um, the other thing you could consider doing, especially in your circumstance, Henry, is giving somebody status just because they met with you, meaning because you've been here and met with us, this entitles you to this. So you're going to get X amount of whatever for free or a discount or whatever it is. Give somebody a status just because you visited us. Right. Give them some type of status that makes them feel like, oh, okay, so I'm kind of special or I get this or that. Um, and so that allows you then to say, now, don't forget, now you've got that two-week status where you get 10% off or you can invite a friend and then they get it for free or whatever. Don't forget to just people love those. It's not a gimmick as much as it is giving them some type of status that gives you urgency. Because the problem is a lot of us lack urgency in our sales process. How do we create urgency? 
lot of it is you got them there to the facility. Now give them some status and, and, and put some urgency metrics in place to get them to make a decision a little bit faster. Okay. Excellent. All right. Let me, uh, another one that's, that's always a challenge is in the cases where I'm selling somebody where somebody might call for information and they want to get right to pricing. And I'm trying as a good salesperson to understand their needs or wants and build some value instead of getting right to pricing so they don't shop me just on price. What are your thoughts on that type of sales scenario? How do I best handle that? So if it comes in via email, if a lead was to come in via email, one of the things I try to do is convert that to a phone call if I can by simply sure. saying, hey, this is pretty complex offering here. If you don't mind, if we could just jump on a phone call, and a lot of times they, they don't. So one of the ways that I fix that is with what I refer to as a self-service sales portal. So these are the kind of people that don't want to come for a visit necessarily. They're just kind of dipping their toe in the water, kind of feeling you out, whatever the circumstance is. A self-service sales portal allows someone to come to your website and basically get everything they need without ever talking to me. Now, people hate this idea. They hate it because salespeople, especially like Ryan, you're trying to eliminate my job. Including now, pricing? You know, well, I think there's a certain part of the pricing piece depending upon the product or service offering, because there are certain things that have a cost that have to be explained. What's interesting is some things don't need explanation. People just want them to talk to a salesperson. Mm -hmm. So I think it depends upon the industry and the circumstance. And <laughs> it depends if you actually offer your service at the price that you quote. <laughs> right. A lot of people will quote a $10,000 price tag but then their average sale is 2,500. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's that one guy that might buy it at 10. Well, there's right, also right. 100 people that think you're crazy. So what I like to do is do self-service sales, a portal that's got a lot of videos because people don't read, that has videos that explain all the complexities of the offering, all the different things, a video of testimonials about the people that love the facility, love the product, love the service, people, people uh, recommendations, reviews that people give you, pictures of those people, lots of smiling faces. So a lot of it is self-service sales. Now let's go to your question though, which was, okay, what if they just want the price? And, well, I and, have and, and the scenario is maybe they, in which we get a lot and other clients I have where they call. So they're calling and well, let's say they're interested in what I have to offer. What's your price? Right. So what I try to do is I don't deflect. I'm going to give them the answer, but I have a bit of a script if, if you will, that offers social proof before the price. And that's something people should make note of, social proof before the price. Social proof is I'm, I'm going to give you the price, but let me front load it with some social proof, which is something along these lines. Uh, Henry, thank you so much for uh, calling into the pricing. Um, we've had some great experiences with John Doe, with Sally Smith, with Steve Smith. I know these are folks you probably don't know, but they're giving us five-star reviews. They're loving this. Um, and so it gives you the opportunity to kind of sell a little bit. And then a lot of times I'll put in a little bit of a kind of a hook. I'll say, um, I, you know, I, it's not that I can't give you the pricing. I'm happy to do that. But until you experience our facility, until you see this, you're really just not going to understand the value that you'll get from the $1,500 per month or whatever it is um, that you're, you know, that you're paying. I also, though, will give them an incentive. I can give you the price now, but if you come and visit, I immediately give you a first-time sign-up bonus 
of 250 bucks or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, here's the price. But if you'll come pay us a visit, I'll immediately give you 250 bucks or whatever it is that makes right. sense. And so you want to give them incentive with the yeah. price, but you want to front load with social proof because you want to get away from being a salesperson. Right, right. Yeah, that's similar to what we've been doing. Good tips there and a good a good idea about the incentive because we know in our scenario that I'm thinking of, if they come in, we usually get them because they, they're like, wow, okay, I get it now, right? It's one of those things you have to get, they have to see to get. Uh, but similarly, when we do get pressed, we'll provide a range of price Mm-hmm. depending because there is a lot of flexibility. So let me ask you, Ryan, uh, how many employees will you have that will be coming into the office? So that's usually how, to your point, that script will start asking some questions to get to a range. And that's where we try to go with answering that question. Right. That's great. And do you offer some type of incentive if they do come, did you say? No, I don't think that we have done that specifically. So it's a great idea. We'll, we'll share the, the current offer or special, mm-hmm. but I don't know that we've okay. tried a special incentive. So we'll think about doing that. I think that's a good idea. The special offer is excellent. Um, a lot of people consider that to be gimmicky. It's not. It is very common for people to be expecting some type of incentive. Uh, we live in a quite an incentive-driven world. Uh, where people are being asked for money all the time. And if there's no incentive to join, um, they'll go and find somebody that does give them some type of incentive. Right. I think that's important for us not to confuse incentives with gimmicks. Gimmicks are things that are hokey. Mm -hmm. Um, Incentives are things that just make sense to propel the conversation forward. And it's not always a discount. I don't like discounting. Instead, it would be, Uh, This is what this package looks like, or this is what this plan looks like, because I feel like a lot of transparency and pricing is uh, a lot of pricing is not terribly transparent is what I meant to say. Yeah. All right. A couple of last year, uh, quick questions, and then we'll start to wrap it up. Uh, We could talk for hours about this one, but just briefly, what, what are your thoughts on when do I ask for the close? We, We touched a little bit on it as you were explaining, as we got into the conversation about follow up. But that's something I see that business owners struggle with as well is we do have to be salespeople at the right time and ask for the business, right? Correct. So I like to ask for the close at the very beginning of the sales call. And it's something that um, I learned years ago from doing um, the training course was like a Sandler sales training kind of thing. And it was sort of, uh, I think they referred to it back then as the upfront contract and maybe they do today. It goes something like this. Uh, Henry, thank you for the 20 minutes. Do you still have 20 minutes? You say, yes. You know, Henry, at the conclusion of this conversation about X, Y, Z, whatever it is, I'd love um, for one of three things to happen. Either one, you love it and we're going to start working together. Or you might say, Ryan, this just isn't for me. And if you say no, it's okay. Or maybe you need more time to think about it. Any one of those three is fine. But I want you to know that when we get to the end of this conversation, I'm just going to ask you, is it a yes? Is it a no? Is it a maybe? And I want you to feel comfortable if the answer is no, I want you to feel comfortable knowing that I'm going to respect your no. So I ask for it at the very beginning so that when I get to the end of the conversation, there's no problem with me saying, Henry, great conversation. Thanks for the visit. You know, I mentioned at the very beginning, is this a yes for you? Is it a no? Do you need to think about it? Where are you at? And sometimes I'll ask that one to 10 close right there in that place before I get to the end. But I feel like if you set yourself up for success, at the beginning of the sales call like that, 
you'll have no trouble asking for it at the end of the sales call. Right. It's not as awkward. You knew it was coming. You're not stressing about, oh my gosh, should I ask? It's they seem to like me. So maybe I don't want to pressure them. You you set the tone up front as to what was going to happen here. Correct. And so I call it the building of a bologna sandwich or a solid sales sandwich. If you start the conversation with a bunch of rapport building that's generic and just doesn't make sense and is awkward, and then you get to the end of the sales call and you're like, uh, what do I say? You've kind of started with a bad sandwich and you've ended with kind of a bologna sandwich. Mm -hmm. I believe you're going to build a, a successful sales sandwich, so to speak. It's start with solid foundation so you can end with a solid foundation. Here's the thing, though. Most folks don't do that because a lot of oh, well, you're giving someone an opportunity to say no. Well, if the answer is no, the answer is no. It's, right. I mean, it, yeah, I'm not going to get anywhere by trying to jump on these people and try to twist their arm. It's not going to work out long term for me. No, and furthermore, that that's the kind of sales that that uh, people who are afraid of sales dread. Right. That yes. that's the manipulation yes. that that people dread. For sure. And if we just got to get out of that mode now, I'm going to ruffle some feathers and I'm going to get a couple of emails from some folks um, that are big fans of these sales trainers that are like, you got to follow them home. You got to stalk these people. You got to get them to a decision It's people don't they're, people don't like they don't like people that act that way. They just want you to be a human. What do you got? Who else has tried it? How much is it? How can I be of help to you today? I want to be helpful to you. And when you take that approach, I understand it's soft. I get it. But I'm selling way more than these hardcore salespeople because I just believe that people are tired of it and they just want recommendations and somebody kind to help them. And they're tired of being sold everywhere you turn. Someone's trying to sell you something, Agreed. but not on every corner is somebody offering help. I think that's an important piece. Right. And then, and again, it, uh, it's much more enjoyable. And if you do it this way, that's much more enjoyable and positive, you'll get better and better at it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do believe that the less you sell somebody, the more you will sell them. It's just a matter of, are you willing to change your sales game? I thought about a book called Teaching Old Sales Dogs New Tricks. I just didn't know if anybody would want to self-identify as an old <laughs> sales dog. You know, As a dog and old. And old yeah. <laughs> There's no doubt. But the book that we've been referring to, again, is Selling Forward, Pandemic-Tested Sales Strategies for Success by Ryan Dorn, who we've been chatting with. Ryan, uh, summary again about the book and tell us again about uh, the, the, the organization that you're helping with the proceeds of these books. Yeah, I saw it kind of a national trend of, of uh, authors um, authoring books and then donating money to charity. And I thought that was a really great idea. So it's the second time we've done it. We're trying to give $10,000 to the Golden Harvest Food Bank and the Feeding America Network. We're at 4,700 right now. Love for your listeners to learn from the book, but also support that cause. Um, the America we live in, we should never have people going hungry. And unfortunately, millions and millions of people don't know where the next meal is coming from. So I'd love for you to buy the book and learn about it. And you can buy it over at uh, ryandorn.com, D-O-H-R-N, or just go to Amazon and I'll look up Selling Forward. I hope it'll be helpful to a lot of people beyond the salespeople. Hopefully we'll feed a lot of families as well. Great stuff. And we'll have a link to it as well on the show notes page of this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. Ryan, we'll wrap it up with this last question. What's one thing you want to stick away from this conversation that we had about sales from that perspective of that small business owner 
that has to do or has to be involved to some degree, right? We're not big enough to have an entire sales organization and a VP of sales that does it for us. We likely have to do some of it. Maybe we have a small team. So what's one key takeaway for that listener? A short-term quick sale doesn't necessarily equal a customer for a lifetime. A well-thought-out sales process and sales plan where you're kind, you're helpful, you're selling to people, but you're being much more of a helper, that really equates to long-term customer success. So don't get so lost in the short sale that you forget about the long-tail opportunities that come. When you take care of a customer, they refer you to others because they really liked your process of how they became involved with you. The short-term sale, a lot of times is where we focus. We really need to think about what does having a great sales process mean to the long-term success of my business? And I think that's a very important takeaway, hopefully, yeah. uh, people listening to your show today and, of course, your fans that listen uh, each and every month. Yeah, great takeaway. And then I think uh, also going back to the point I had just made, that what that does for us is it makes it, generally speaking, an overall, a positive experience. and all of us can do this, even if we don't have a sales background or we don't consider ourselves quote unquote sales people that typically comes from that negative connotation we have of, again, that, that bad used car salesman, like you articulated, not that yeah. all used car salesmen are bad, but right, that's what right. we usually come to. We think it's about forcing people to make a decision they don't want to make. They, we think it's about high pressure, about mm -hmm. manipulation, but that's not actually how it works most effectively is not that way. It isn't. It's all about being a guide, being a Sherpa, being an advisor. Um, and um, and also, you know, uh, Henry, be sure to tell Mitzi to drop me an email and I'll make sure that she gets a copy of the book as well. <laughs> uh, that, that's great. She'll appreciate that. All right. Uh, tell us again where you want us to go online to learn more. Love for folks to either go and buy the book on Amazon or you can get it on Audible, et cetera, uh, or head up to the website, uh, ryandorn.com. It's D-O-H-R-N, ryandorn.com. And love to help. And, and thank you, Henry. Uh, for your support of what we're trying to do. Appreciate it. Thanks for being with me today. All righty, this is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me on this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Ryan Dorn. I release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.